And the rest of you can open up to Matthew 16, which is where we will get to. Uh, we have already sung the sermon. Um, the, the reality is we try to pair up music and message, uh, that it's, that it's really all the message. There's worship in music, there's worship in word. And, uh, sometimes as you hear the sermon, you will see why we picked the songs that we did. Uh, it's been so powerful to, to be doing that. So hopefully you guys will see those connections. Um, last week we talked about suffering and how to respond to it from uh, the book of Genesis. And the truth is that bad news can be very, very disorienting. Um, sometimes you're processing through news that you have received, and uh, it seems to really affect other uh, things in your life. You're wondering what has happened to your life. Maybe some bad news that you have received actually has questioned who you are. So it's gone to the very core of who you are, and you've said, who am I now? Like, my world has shifted, and I don't know who I am anymore. I love artists, and oftentimes artists get a bad rap in the church. Um, but good artists, even those who don't explicitly follow Jesus or submit to, to him as their Lord and Savior, artists are made in the image of God, uh, just like, just like um, all of us are. And artists process by producing something. It's sort of who they are. It's what they are. And um, and God-honoring beauty comes when an artist is going through pain. Much of our best art, if you know the story behind it, um, came from deep places of hurt and pain. And there's beauty in the hurt, and there's beauty in the questions. And what artists can do sometimes is give voice or give visual or give experience to sort of what we're processing. Last week, we ended the service uh, with the song 24 by a band called Switchfoot. And John Foreman is writing, and he writes these lyrics. And I just want to go back to it because it so hit me that life is not what I thought it was 24 hours ago. You ever received a phone call? Have you ever had a conversation? Have you ever had something crumble or bad news that has happened? And 24 hours, you're just looking back and go, what has happened to my life? Things I thought I knew were true are not true anymore. Maybe you're going through this right now. Maybe this is fresh, even though it happened 20 years ago. I know some of the stories in this room because you've been gracious and generous with me, and we've prayed and cried and talked through some of these things. Life is not what I thought it was 24 hours ago. Still I'm singing, Spirit, take me up in arms with you. I'll tell you what John Foreman, the author of this song, is doing. He's disoriented, but he is remembering what is real. He's disoriented, but he's remembering what is real. It's not what I thought, but still I'm singing. Spirit, take me up in arms with you. We're told that our enemy is not flesh and blood, is it? It's spiritual. So we take up the sword of the Spirit. What is the sword of the Spirit? It's the Bible. It's the Word of God. And the shield of faith. What I love about good art is there is some really sound doctrine embedded into this song. Some in the later chapters that deals with Jacob and his wrestling with the angel and turning his name into Israel. Front page news every day right now. Great story worth checking out in, in Genesis, uh, I think, 32. So how is he the second man and why now? Oh, here's, here's where it goes on. Sorry. He doesn't stop at a song. He goes on. L listen to this. I'm not copping out. I am the second man now. 
and you're raising the dead in me. Man, for those of you who know your Bible and you know your own history, you know he's singing sound doctrine. How is he the second man and why now? The first man talks about his human nature. You get your first man nature from Adam. It's our human nature. The second man is his divine nature, that we are born of Jesus by faith. So that we are now the second man. Jesus came as the second Adam. And now, why does he write, I am the second man now? Because a change has taken place. He wasn't born into this. His identity changed when he met Jesus. And what happens? You're raising the dead in me. Not just past. Yes, forgiveness is great. But God is in a process right now of raising the dead in him. Man, there's so much in one line. This was sung last week. Rob and I talked about it. He goes, I think I confused people with the song that I closed with. I'm like, that's okay. Art confuses people. But it also draws us deeper. I said, most artists aren't appreciated in their lifetime. So I said, Rob, we'll love you when you're dead. So just keep stirring up the artistic community. We will celebrate you at your funeral. Um, What he's doing, by the way, is Romans 12 in action. The transformation that comes by the renewing of our minds. Think about this. We can think our way into right living. We can think and remember what's real, even when we're totally disoriented by bad news. But there's a flip side, isn't there? There's a dark side. We can think our way into bad living. We can think our way into acting out of people that we aren't really. Jesus masterfully uses questions to teach truth, but also to expose lies. Matthew 16, I hope you're there. In verse 13, follow along. It says this. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, notice these two questions. Who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah or others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Pause for a moment. The first question is, Uh, is sort of drawing out lies. Hey, what's popular opinion? What's word on the street about me? And they know the answer just like that because Jesus is the talk of the town. The second question teases out the truth. Listen to Peter's answer, verse 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Let me just draw out a couple of points. Jot these down if they're helpful. Three of the four Gospels record this very exchange. And in all of them, we see some similarities. But uh, here's the things I wanted to draw out. Number one is this, that public opinion and truth often don't line up. Remember that. Public opinion and truth often don't light up. You ought to have a healthy skepticism always for what polls are saying is true. Hey, the vast majority of the people think this. That ought to almost give you caution to say, hmm. Here's number two. What people believe doesn't make it true. This is true of the crowds and it's true of Peter. The fact that Jesus actually is divine or not divine, is not true based on other people's opinion of him. So the crowds think he's John the Baptist or Jeremiah or one of the prophets or Elijah. They have all kinds of wild speculation about him. 
Peter makes a statement, and neither Peter nor the crowd are right simply because they believe it. That's a massive fallacy that's going around the world right now. Here's another one. Jesus is making sure they're getting it and not just getting it from the crowds. Every pastor ought to tune into what Jesus is doing. Every parent ought to be uh, tuning into what Jesus is doing. Every teacher, every discipler, every mentor. Don't just assume that people are getting it. We can be very, very tuned into the crowd without knowing it. Jesus is driving home and saying, okay, that's what they say. What do you say about me? He's leading them into further understanding. Knowing who Jesus is does not come from humans on earth, but from God the Father in heaven. So revelation about Jesus' identity, his place of origin, his purpose, and where he went when he died is all speculation unless it's divinely given. That's what Jesus is saying. And then catch this, you may recognize this from another place in Scripture, but Peter is saying with his mouth what he believed in his heart to be true. What is the formula for salvation that we profess with our mouth what we believe in our heart? The language and wording here makes it absolutely crystal clear that Jesus is both Messiah and God, Christ the Son of the living God. One more thing. As we look at this passage, why does Jesus refer to him both as Simon Barjona and Peter? It's good to ask questions of the text. It's good to have the, que- the text ask, ask questions of you. You ought to read the scripture with, a, with an eye towards why is that? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but uh, my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, Jesus talking, you are Peter, verse 18 says. And, I will, and, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here's why I'm bringing this up. Peter's identif- identity is clarified by Jesus' identity. Peter's identity is clarified by Jesus' identity. Peter's understanding and profession of faith did not change Jesus in any way, did it? Him affirming that he's the Christ, the Son of the living God, doesn't change Jesus, but it changes Peter. Isn't that amazing? Our profession of faith doesn't change God in any way. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It changes us. Why? Because our identity is tied to Jesus' identity. Simon Barjona stresses the human nature, whereas Peter emphasizes his new identity, his divine nature. He's saying that you came from Simon Bar-Jonah, literally son of Jonah or son of John, and now you are Peter. What does Peter mean? Some of you Bible scholars know this. It means rock. So it's a little wordplay on it, isn't it? He's, He's now named Peter, rock. And get this, this is so beautiful. Peter was a fisherman turned outspoken disciple. And given this name very early on in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus saw where Peter was going. He wasn't there yet. Because we know at Jesus' deepest moment of human need, where was Peter? Running. He was denying Jesus three times. So the rock, Peter, is a fisherman turned outspoken disciple who will deny Jesus three times. And then the same but new man, Peter, becomes apostle, pastor in the early church, 
author who's still read today widely, and martyr. That is someone who dies for his faith. That's the transformation. Same old Peter, sort of, but not really. Brand new person in Christ. So as with Peter, our identity is clarified in the identity of Jesus. No doubt we will sing this song in this series. Lucas uh, and I were sort of putting our heads together. What songs talk about this this idea of identity? Look at Lauren Daigle's song, You Say. The only thing that matters now is everything you think of me. In you, I find my worth. In you, I find my identity. Who you are comes from who Jesus is. I love this. Look at her gaze. Where is she looking? She's looking up. You know what this album is called? Josh, what is it? Look Up Child. Josh is a huge Lauren Daigle fan. I'm outing you right now, bro. I knew. I I told Ellie, I'm like, you're going to like this Lauren Daigle quote. She goes, Josh is going to like it. I'm like, oh, that's right. Catch this though. Look Up Child. Look Up Child. And where's her gaze? Her gaze is fixed up. Church, today we turn Jesus' question around. And we'll ask Jesus the same question Jesus asks his disciples. Asking of God himself, who do you say that I am? His answer to this question, or answers plural, is how Christians orient their life. Think of this word orientation. Anyone been to a new school orientation, a new job orientation, sports orientation, facility orientation? Okay, we've all, many of us have been to that. Um, it's easy to get lost and stay lost if you're, if you're disoriented, if you don't know sort of the lay of the land. Uh, now, freshmen are notoriously good at getting disoriented and being lost. Uh, here's, a, here's an advertisement. I just pulled up an advertisement for this college, and here's, here's an orientation class. Um, it helps people get their bearings, uh, directions where to go, uh, sort of a lay of the land. And it can feel really exciting. Look how excited these students are. Wow, orientation. It also can be a little bit more daunting or ominous. Um, why you must go, go, go. Like, you know, I've got to go to orientation. It sounds kind of scary. Um, another definition of it is this. Listen to this. A person's position relative to something or someone else. A person's position relative to something or someone else. Your orientation. Which way you are facing. Which way you are headed in which direction. So we'll use this definition to kind of guide us. And if you look at this picture, every night uh, God preaches a sermon. Do we, do we know this? Psalm 19. Every single night there's a sermon being preached. So we look up into the night sky, and if we could time lapse our brain, we know what we would see. We would see some movement in the sky and what's going on. As we look at this image, it reminds us of some deep truth, that there is a single event that sits at the very center of history, and there's a single person who sits at the very center of history. It's what all history turns on. Here's a hint. The event is not your life, and the person is not you. Everyone do this. Take a deep breath, hold it for one second, and let it out. What I just told you is massively good news. We live in a world completely flipped. Your happiness, your identity sits with you being at the very center. And God says, absolutely not. It's great news that it's not your life and you that sit at the center of this universe. A.W. Tozer said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing 
about us. I have used that quote, and I think it's a great quote, but the more I've pondered it with this series in mind, with all due respect to A.W., because I really respect A.W. Tozer and have benefited from his writing, I think there's something infinitely more important. It's infinitely more important what God thinks about you. The most important thing about you is actually not what you think about God, but what God thinks about you. And that's what this series is going to explore. From now until Christmas, that's six weeks for those of you counting up shopping days. From now until Christmas, we have six Sundays, and we are going to look at a different identity that is told to us, gifted to us by God. Who we are in Christ. For some of you, for some of you, this may be mind blowing and like absolutely life altering as you're hearing this or learning this or studying this for the very first time. I would suspect for many of you, this will be review, but here's my caution to you. Here's my invitation to you. This is a lesson that we actually learn over a lifetime and different identities, different aspects of who we are and God whispering and reminding us of who we are hit us in different seasons. I've already asked you to do this once. I don't think I've ever done this in a sermon, but let me have you do it a second time. Everyone gulp in some air right now. Big breath, hold it, and now let it out. Here's a really bizarre idea. Um, You just breathed in parts of other people. So there are floating dust particles around, and a majority of that is dead skin cells you may not even know the name of someone you just breathed in. It gives new meaning to the song, We Are One in the Bond of Love. We have a little science devotional book that we tend to read every Saturday. And last week, it hit me. This was so perfect for what we were talking about. But it told us to take a look at our hand. And it said, more than just your hand holding this book, reading it, it's actually hard at work producing skin cells. Right now, your hand, if you look at it, it's not just sitting there. It's actually busy doing a lot of work. The top layer of your skin we call the epidermis, right? But there are lower layers of the skin. And scientists believe that there are about 1.6 trillion skin cells on your body. Now, give or take, because there's different sizes of people, right? Uh, But that's a lot. That's a lot of skin cells. And they move uh, sort of from the bottom layer up into the top layer, and then they flake off of your body. Now, aside from my kids who are exempt from this, anyone know how long that process takes? What is the life cycle of a cell being made at the lower levels of your body right now as you speak without thinking about it to the end? Mitch, laid on me. Wow! Here's what the little kid science book said. It said about a month. That sounds like about a month to me. Give it up for Mitch! Man. I'm glad that you take care of sick people, Mitch. That's, a, that's an encouraging thing. So about a month to go from birth to death to dust to your breakfast, right? Like that's the, that's the life cycle of a... You guys are all going to come in mask next week. I already know it. Ashes to ashes and dust to, to dust. There goes Uncle Bob. Um, so when they reach the top, they quickly, they quickly flake away. Um, but again, we're, we're ever, think about this. We are ever being made new. It's designed into us. You had no say in thinking this up. This is way beyond your, your, your pay scale. You are ever new by design. Now take the physical reality 
and look at the deeper reality with me that we are made new in Christ. So if you're writing anything down, write this down. Who does God say that I am? I am new. That's our first one for this week. We're going to have six of them. I could do a 30-week message on this because God tells us so richly who we are. But number one is I am new. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, a feature for this uh, series, we actually borrowed from our youth. Right now, you're going to be handed a card like this. Um, it's going to be really awkward if you don't take one, because you're like, I'm just planning on not memorizing this. But uh, take one, and the invitation is that you would memorize this verse. The Bible says that the young of the church are to be an example to the rest of the church. You know what we've been doing for the last maybe six weeks is we've been having a different memory verse uh, for each topic we've been talking through and sort of some different things. And um, parents show some grace. My house is littered with these cards. If your house is going to be littered with something, having it be God's memory verses, like verses around it, we actually use and are dog-eared, that's a pretty great thing. So take this, tuck it in your Bible, put it somewhere you'll see it every day. It's a relatively short one. These are shorter than almost all the youth group ones, just so you know. We're starting you very small, baby step, right? Uh, we're getting our, young, our, our old brains young again. You are new in Christ. Catch this, not just a fresh start, that's New Year's, but a whole new person. So big is this transformation that Jesus used the idea of being born again. So in Christ, think about this, new defines you. You are defined by new. Next time you wonder if there's hope for change, look at your hand. Remember the skin cells. If it's true of my body, if it's designed into my body, God, you have made this all the more true. It's a pointer to my soul. So first I'm going to look at the lies. Who do people say that you are? That's the first question Jesus asked. He was drawing out the lies. We're entering into the brand new you season, aren't we? If any of you are gym owners right now, you're figuring out what promotion can I do to get people in the gym and have a brand new you by February. How about diet? Anyone dream up any new diets or marketing that? If you are, you are thinking, how can I communicate a brand new you awaits? And I'll extol all the, the reasons of why, of why you, know, you, you should buy this. Lifestyle tips. We're going to see this everywhere. Everyone wants a new you. Here's the thing. A brand new you isn't up to you. You really aren't your own project. You can do some of these things, and probably we should do some of the things we're going to hear in the brand new you season. But all of it is temporal until we look at this deeper thing and realize the, the, that a, a brand new you is not up to you. Everyone looks to someone to tell them who they are. Now, let me just say this. Other people are actually a correct starting point to discover who you are. What's God's plan A? God's plan A is that you are born into a loving family that honors God and has a doting father and adoring mother. And as you as a baby are looking around for who you are, you constantly see loving mom and dad, loving older siblings, loving aunts and uncles and grandparents, loving community, loving church, loving pastors and Sunday school teachers. 
So there's a sense that the starting point of discovering who you are by God's design is you're born into a family and you look to those people, but it's not the ending point. We grow out of that, and that handoff is parents to point that gaze to God. Look up, child. When they're little, it's look up, child. Let me see your eyes. Here in me, this correction is not to shame you. This is not to punish you. Look at me. We need to get this handled because I love you so much. So we take that gaze, and as parents, we're, we're handing that off to God. Now, I know for some of you, you might be scoffing or you might be feeling sick right now because that's not what you were handed. And I want you to know that grieves me, but infinitely more important to you is it grieves the heart of God. It's not the way that it should be. So who do people say that you are? Did you know that apps can get sued? It's true. Instagram is being sued by half the states in our union right now. Why is that? Well, because they are accused of targeting young users knowing that their platform causes harm. So think about these two words, that it's addictive, that is, it's a habit you may not even understand as a habit, right? You ever find yourself mindlessly scrolling something? So it's addictive and it's destructive. Here's a little hint for anyone trying to lead a good life. Anything that is addictive and destructive, you ought to just sort of avoid like the plague. They're being accused of being addictive and destructive and intentionally, knowingly profiting off of young children. In World Magazine, this last week, November 18th issue, tells the story of Lydia Hammond. Lydia Hammond's fascination with Instagram's Explore page began when she was just 13 years old. At first, she watched baking and puppy videos, but soon mental health-related posts appeared on her feed like one that she recalls with this title, Five Symptoms to See if You're Actually Depressed. Before Lydia's ninth grade year, her family moved and she started a new school. When the pandemic hit, she spent even more hours scrolling Instagram, including posts about mental illness. Catch this. Eventually, the self-described bubbly extrovert began experiencing anxiety attacks. Now 18, she believes Instagram had something to do with that. Here's her quote. I lost who I was. I was looking to social media to tell me how I was feeling. I want you to know, church, Lydia is not alone in this. This new lawsuit filed October 24th by 33 states right here in Northern California claims that Meta marketed its products to users under the age of 13, which is against federal law. Who do people say that you are? Here's two big categories. Some people say that you're stuck where you are. And what they mean by that is this. You're stuck in your ways. You're doomed to repeat. Uh, That's true spiritually. It's true of your family. It's true of your location. It's true of your lot in life. Maybe you tell your own messages. I'll never change. I'll never kick this. There's no hope for a difference. So that's one extreme. How about another extreme? Another extreme is this. You are free to fly. That means this. Whatever you want to be, that's who you are. Whatever you want to be, you're free to fly. Be anything you want, sexually, physically, vocationally. Now, this is utterly ridiculous. 
but it is a mass deception going on right now, not just in our schools being taught, but in our society, and it is fed by pride. Look at this verse from Proverbs. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Now, these are both lies. You are not stuck. Hear me clearly. In Christ, we are not bound by our past. We're not bound by our birth family. We're not bound by some of our limitations. We're not bound by our shame. The other lie is that you are not anything you want to be. In some ways, you will always be you. Only a redeemed, restored version of who you are. So God gave you raw material. There was a girl named Shauna. She was a classic strong-willed child. When she was four years old, she kept trying to go AWOL on her tricycle. Her mom could not rein her in and finally said, Look, Shauna, there's a tree right here and there's a driveway right here. You can ride your tricycle on the sidewalk between the driveway and the tree, but you can't go past that. If you go past that, you will get a spanking. I will be inside. I've got stuff to do, but I'll be watching you. The story goes on to say that Shauna backed up to her mom pointed to her spanking zone and said, well, you might as well spank me now because I've got places to go. (laughs) That's a true story of a four-year-old. Now, would it surprise you to learn that Shauna, when she grew up, had formidable leadership capacities and an indomitable drive? She always had them and she always will. In a certain sense, the raw material of who you have in that sweet little baby is already there. Not just in, in uh, sort of physical that's going to grow, but in temperament, in gifting, and in some of those things. So God gives us the raw material from birth. You aren't your own project. Psalm 103 says, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us. And we are His. Oh, that's such good news. What a relief. Everyone wants to be against leadership. That's like the, the, the rebel inside of all of us. But good leadership is a massive gift. Think about this. You don't have to come up with your gender. God has gifted you from birth, male and female. He's gifted the world with your gender. Whew, what a relief that I don't have to come up with that. Secondly, you don't need to question your attractions. God commanded one man plus one woman at a time exclusively for a lifetime. Anything that falls outside of that is a non-legitimate option. Okay, because my attractions and passions can get confusing. Thank you, God. What good leadership that is. Here's another one. You can't be anything you want. How dare you? I've been told my whole life I can be anything I want. Well, you can't. We're just truth tellers in here. Here's the thing. God has lovingly limited your talent and your experience and your location. Anytime you've ever thought, I need another one of me. No, we don't. We don't need another one of you. We've got one. Ask your family. One is all they can handle. One is good. You are to be in one place at one time, and and that's good. The fact that you can't be everything is awesome. 
You are not God, so breathe a sigh of relief. That would be a third time I'm asking you to take deep breaths. I must need a lot of oxygen right now. Remember the lie that the serpent spoke over Adam and Eve. This is Genesis 3, 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, the forbidden fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You will be like God. Be on guard because adults and children alike are believing this same lie. Looking to be God instead of looking to God. Huge difference. Looking to be God is way different than looking to God as our orientation. So don't look to others, but to God for your identity. So we wrap up with this. Who does God say that you are? The first question draws out the lie. The second question draws out and exposes the truth. You are new. That means you have brand new desires and plans, a new outlook, new possibilities, new resources in the Holy Spirit, new relationships, new ways of thinking, new ways of relating, new ways of repairing and restoring the things that go wrong in your life. Not just the big things, but the little things over time. As a child of divorce, I grew up in two homes. You know this, some of you who know me. I grew up one week in my, uh, in my dad and stepmom's home, and I grew up in the other week in my, in my mom's home. And I thought about this. Each home had an absolutely perfect attendance record with church. On one week with my dad and stepmom, we were 100%. We'd go to church every week without fail. My dad was an engineer and just liked things straight and clean and neat lines, and we just did it every week, even on vacation. used to really bum me out. We never took a vacation from God. Now I'm thankful. You know, my non-Christian home, we were 100% attendance of not going to church. So I grew up in this polar opposite world of 100% attendance going to church, 100% not, a, uh, not going to church. And even when I was at church, I would find ways to avoid sitting still in a service. From the time I was a young kid, I went to a very big church. I guess it's harder to track kids back then. We didn't have a lot of technology. Um, but I knew all the pathways. It's now called Venture Christian Church. I knew all the pathways through the ivy. I knew forts. I knew all kinds of stuff. Now, part of that was because the outdoors is my happy place, Korea. Um, but secondly, um, because I, I was avoiding being with people I didn't know. We were a massive church, and I was more introverted back then. And I went every other week. I didn't go to school with any of these kids because Highway 85 didn't exist. So I just kind of wanted out of there. It's always funny who God takes and picks to be pastors who lead services that people try to escape from now. It's me, right? The the very one who didn't want to be sitting in church. Let me tell you about the change. The change happened when I was 17 years old. I just heard just the utter clear draw of God to come forward. And I understood the difference between praying a prayer and really submitting and giving my life to the Lord, repenting. And that's what happened when I was 17 years old. I got baptized the following Sunday. And the week after that, I found myself sitting in big church. Big church, for those who don't know, is this, the main service. And it was big, 1,500 people or something like that. And I was by myself. I was sitting in church by myself. Now, that wasn't so different because I was a fairly compliant kid on a lot of fronts. I knew Dad was going to ask, hey, how was church? It's good, Dad. What was your favorite point? I don't know. He would ask me something like to sort of clarify if I was there. But I was sitting in big church, and I wanted to be there. And that was brand new for me. I was like, well, this is new. I want to be here. I want to be engaged. Can I just tell you that almost my entire life, I'm 52 years old now. God has drawn me. I love being with God's people. 
I love coming and doing what I'm doing right now. Began when I was 17 years old. It was shocking to me that I wanted to be in church. That was the new happening in me. God was transforming me from the inside out. Look at the old. Our old sinful desires and ways of life. We were all a mess. All of us born into loving the darkness, not seeking God, sinful minded, unable to please God, controlled by sinful passions and children of wrath. You don't appreciate the good news until you remember the bad news, what you were saved from. Some of you saying huge shouts of thanks this morning because you've had a cruddy week and you remember this earth is not our home. We have a hope that far surpasses the circumstances of my current week. This is the bad news. The old cannot exist with the new. Jesus doesn't come to just restrain sin and sort of alter little bits of this or keep it you know, in, locked in a closet. Jesus comes to kill your sin, to destroy it, because the old is incompatible with the new. Look at Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. God doesn't throw out. He restores. We've just finished a season where just about every appliance in our home has decided, I quit. I will stop working today. And here's the world we live in. Looking into fixing the appliance is a less desirable option than ditching the appliance and starting over. We just have these giant disposable. Now, I know someone is fixing this for much cheaper than I was quoted and reselling it somewhere. But right now, in many of our things, ditching is, is better than, than fixing. Now, think about this. This isn't God's way. All this week, as I have this point in my mind, Monday morning, all this week, there was a, um, an oven, I think, and a dishwasher on the curb, just sitting there. I'm like, there it is. That's, that's sort of the, the more normal way now. Just ditch it and start over. God's way is totally different. He restores. He takes what he's made and called good, and he restores it to its original Design. Think about this. Your skin cells take about a month, 28 days, according to Mitch. Thank you, Mitch. The new you takes a lifetime. Learn from your skin cells. Learn from the deep breaths where you're breathing in other people's body parts, which is so, so bizarre. God, little by little, in incremental ways, you are changing me. You're changing me from the inside out. Man, there's so much that God teaches right from our body. So how is the new you possible? Let me just close with this. Tim Keller says this, God created the world in the beginning and it was beautiful. He recreated the world at the cross and it was an ugly process. Creation, recreation. God doesn't start over, he restores The way we are made new is only by the self-sacrificing God of the Bible. To quote an old hymn I grew up singing, all other hope is sinking sand. This was a picture taken at 6.30 this morning. Eli Eli and I came driving in, and I thought, there it is. The cross against the backdrop 
of a sunrise. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture of what's going on. So it's one thing to know how this happens. It happens because of the self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ and his ability to have us be in him, abiding like a branch in a vine to get all the nutrients, all the new life. But we all want to know when is this going to happen. In describing the process of sanctification or the idea of taking hold of this new life, I came across this this week. C.S. Lewis from The Weight of Glory. Listen carefully. Probably... This is talking about sanctification. Probably this will not, for most of us, happen in a day. Poetry replaces grammar. Gospel replaces law. Longing transforms obedience as gradually as the tide lifts a grounded ship. What a powerful picture to see those things and just go, why is it so different being a Christian all these years later? Oh, God, you've, been, you've just been at work. You've been at work in ways I haven't even thought to ask you to work in me. But I made new. I made new. This new life in Christ keeps, keeps us pointing toward and guards us, keeps us pointing forward and guards us from getting stuck. This is written down for you, but 1 Peter 1.22, I believe it is. If not, jot down 1 Peter 1.22. Let me just sort of speak this over you. And the encouragement is to live out who you are becoming in Christ. If you haven't made a profession of faith, if you haven't gotten in Christ, that's step one. But listen to how action springs from identity. 1 Peter 1.22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Just catch this. Our actions, the way we live springs from who we are. Love one another from a pure heart since you have been born again. Friends. Getting and keeping our identity straight clarifies so many of the other questions that we have going on. I'm going to invite the band to come on up right now, and I'm going to invite the ushers to begin passing out communion. I love that this message of being made new is falling on Communion Sunday. We celebrate communion at least once a month, sometimes more than that. And I also love that we're having a baptism here in just a couple of moments. Both of these pictures are just so profoundly beautiful to communicate some of what's being talked about. Richard Loveless wrote a book called Dynamics of the Spiritual Life. I don't have it on the screen, so just close your eyes, try to get this. It's a short quote, but he says this. Much that we have interpreted as a defect of sanctification in church people is really an outgrowth of their loss of bearing with respect to justification. So much of what we interpret as, oh, they're not being sanctified, they're not growing up in Christ, it's a loss of bearing with respect to justification. I think he's right. If you haven't experienced this new life of Christ, maybe you've never had your bearing set straight. Maybe you think you are your sin. Maybe you think you are your good works. God graciously gives us 
an experiential reminder, and it's called the Lord's Supper. It's what we're about to do. The new you is found in Jesus. We are one with him, and bread and cup actually illustrate this. It drives this home because we're taking the blood and body of Christ into us. His gracious invitation is for you to bring all that you are for all that he is. God, thank you so much for telling us who we are, not leaving us guessing. God, we trust, we say out loud that we trust your process. You didn't give it to us all at once, just as we don't teach our children all at once. We couldn't handle it. We couldn't retain it. God, today we trust the process that you are making us new. We know that our main responsibility is to receive is to just orient our life in such a way that we're pointed towards you, not hiding away from you in shame, not walking away from you in blatant rebellion. But God, today afresh, we, we are just here. We're here this morning because we're, we've oriented our lives around who you are and what you would say to us, what you've given us. We know this morning that we belong to you and that was made possible because of the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ that he fulfilled the covenant, that he took on the consequence, the payment of our sin. God, for anyone here who's not been experiencing this new, these new passions, these new sensitivities, a new hunger, new relationships, God, I pray today we would come empty-handed, that we'd stop clinging to other things, that we wouldn't turn partially to you. Uh, As our board says on the stage here, that we're coming to you wholehearted undivided God meet with us teach us, fill us speak to us even now as we take communion Revelation 21.5 and he who was seated on the throne said behold I am making all things new also he said write this down for these words are trustworthy and true just now as you Sing this song, participate in communion. We won't take it together. Uh, We'll take it together, but not from the front. So just take the bread, which represents Jesus' body, and the cup that represents his blood, and celebrate communion now.